0: Well, how many of you are excited for another life-giving, life-changing, exciting, inspiring, motivating message? How many of you are ready for an amazing sermon today? Okay, lower your expectations and come back next week. Okay, next week is gonna be amazing. This week is gonna be a little rough because today we're gonna go over the seven years of tribulation in the book of Revelation. It is a sermon over tribulation, trials, the wrath of God, you excited now? Okay, go ahead and grab your Bible, turn with you to Mark chapter 13, pick it up in verse 14. It's week three in a little mini-series through the Gospel of Mark that we are calling Living in the Last Days. I hope you brought your Bible, and I hope you brought a snack, because today is going to be a long day, all right? We're going to go ahead and dive straight into Mark chapter 13, verse 14. I got 100 slides, four chapters, and abouts. I don't know how long it's gonna take, but we're gonna be here, okay? Verse 14, but here we go. When you see the abomination of desolation, I told you it's gonna be an amazing sermon. We studied this last week. It refers to two things it refers to an event. And to a person. It is an event that's going to kick off the seven years of tribulation, and it is a person known as the Antichrist, the coming world ruler. Here's what happens. The abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Listening to some conversations in the lobby, conversations that are happening in our small groups, people online, everybody who's in the YouTube comments right now posting all the crazy stuff that I've been reading. Everybody uh, just has a lot of questions when it comes to studying what is known as the doctrine of eschatology. Jesus says here, let the reader understand, but if we're honest, So few of us actually do, amen? And there's a variety of reasons. Maybe some of you grew up in a church like I grew up in where there was an overemphasis on the end times, where every politician that gets elected is the Antichrist. Every hurricane in the Gulf is a sign of the end time. Every new technology that comes out, are you gonna get the mark of the beast? And so we watched all the rapture movies from the 70s and saw all the guillotines with people getting their heads chopped off. And we're like, you know what? Just not really into that. And so we swung the pendulum in the opposite direction to where we come to a conclusion where we just don't know everything, which means we don't really know anything. So why bother? Why study? Why read about it when we can't really figure it out? So we just make jokes like, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? You say, I'm pan-trib. What does that mean? In the end, it's all gonna pan out. I don't really know. And so we just haven't really invested or focused our study on the end times. But let me just go ahead and tell you something, that just just because we don't know everything doesn't mean that we can't know anything. Jesus here says, let the reader understand. He wants you to know this. He wants you to study this. He wants you to be able to understand this. 19 times in Mark 13, Jesus gives us an imperative. Be alert, be on guard, be on watch. Get ready for I am coming soon. He tells us these things because he wants us to be able to understand them. And so we need to study eschatology and the teachings of Jesus when it comes to the end time. So there's others of us who maybe the pendulum has swung in an opposite direction to where you kind of feel slighted that you haven't been taught this, you haven't been encouraged to study these things. You, you're new to church or maybe you're new to faith and you know you've learned John 3:16 and Jeremiah 2911 you could tell me all about God's wonderful purpose and plan for your life and you heard the sermon over David and Goliath. but when it comes to being ready and prepared to defend your faith, to have confidence in where you stand with Christ and to endure trials and tribulations, well, nobody ever taught you that. And so we're going through this series and some of you are like, whoa, I just didn't know that. I feel a little cheated. I feel a little slighted. I feel ill-equipped and unprepared for the end times. And that's some of you guys, welcome to redemption. We're glad to have you. And then others of you, you're in a position to where you're just like, I don't believe this at all. I just, dis- I just disregard it completely. You know, Jesus said this stuff 2000 years ago. and He said he was coming back. It, it's been a while. I checked my calendar in my watch and he still ain't back yet, which means he's Probably not coming back. This is all myth. This is all folklore, fairy tale. It's things for you, pastor, to, to scare the hell out of me. It's doom and gloom, turn or burn, repent or perish. That's, that's all you're doing It's just trying to scare me into making a decision. And maybe you want to get a little bit of money out of me. And so that's all that it is. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to believe it because it still hasn't happened yet. Let me go ahead and just submit to you this. Just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean that it's not going to happen right? Spoiler alert, you're going to die. It hasn't happened yet though, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. You can drink water, you can take your vitamins, you can wear a mask and get the vaccine, but one day you are going to die. And just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. See, the question is, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The question is not a matter of if, the question is a matter of when. It's not a question of if, This is gonna happen. Jesus says it will happen. In the Bible, there are 300 prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus. There is 100 prophecies in the Old Testament about his first coming. Jesus fulfilled all of those, which means there's another 200 prophecies about his second coming. And you better believe if he was faithful to fulfill the first 100, he will be faithful to fulfill the second. That's the truth. This is not a question of if, this is a question of when. And I already said it in week one of this series, but even outside of the Bible, people understand that this world is gonna to come to an end. So the second law of thermodynamics teaches heat death or entropy that one day the sun is going to stop shining, the moon is gonna fall, the star's gonna fall, and this earth is gonna be completely uninhabited. That's the second law of thermodynamics, that's science. You even see documentaries from the History Channel, from National Geographic, or from Discovery, or Al Gore. And they would all tell you that this world is going to come to an end. It's an inconvenient truth, but me and Al Gore, we got something in common. We both believe that this world is going to come to an end. Environmental activists, and the Paris Climate Agreement, and you know all of those Hippie environmental people and progressive politicians in New York, they would all say that by the year 2050, if we do not lower the emissions, global warming is going to cause life on Earth here by the year 2050 to be completely different, maybe even uninhabitable as well. And what's fascinating about each one of these claims in different people is that the claims that they make about the end of the world are eerily similar to what we're gonna study today in the book of Revelation. Just something for you to think about. The question is not a matter of if, the question is a matter of when. And just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We can trust what Jesus is going to tell us here. Because the first prophecy Jesus told us about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 has come true. And it was the doomsday clock on the second coming of Jesus, 8070 kicked off what is the beginning of the end. And he was faithful in being right and true on his first prophecy, which means he will be faithful and true about his remaining prophecies. And here we go as we dive into the remainder of these prophecies. Here's what we read Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter into his house to try to take anything out, lest the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. What's he saying? It's gonna be so bad, you run. It's gonna be so dangerous, you get out of town. It's gonna be so horrific and horrifying, the trials and tribulations that we will go through. You don't go home, you don't grab your stuff, You just get out of town. Some of you immediately, you're thinking, Pastor Byron, what about the Great Commission? I love that you're thinking about the Great Commission. What about the church? What is the church gonna do? Don't we have a command from God to make disciples? Absolutely. That's the final words that Jesus gave to his disciples, and that is the first words that Jesus gives to his church. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded of you, and I am with you always, even till when? Till the end of the age and we teach the Great Commission. We preach the Great Commission. That's why you're gathered here today, so that way we can fulfill the Great Commission, that we can see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. That's who we are, that's why we're here. That's why there's an invite card in your seat. We want you to go fulfill the Great Commission when you go out to lunch. That's the reason we have small groups. We gather in homes to study and read the Bible. That's the reason we want you to serve, so you can use your gifts and talents to help further the mission of God. This is the reason we share our faith. This is the reason there's a baptism wall outside with 200 plus locks on it where people, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your children, and your grandparents have stepped in that water, and they have gone public with their faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why redemption exists, to see the Great Commission be fulfilled here in the heart of downtown Beaumont and all around the world. The Great Commission is incredibly, important. And in the previous section that we read, Jesus says the last sign yet to be filled is that this gospel must be preached when? To all of the earth and then the end will come. Desolation takes place. Guess what? The whole world has already heard. There is no more great commission in effect. You get out of town. Everyone's already heard. Everyone's already had a chance to respond and to repent to the message. Now the call is that we Go. Go, hide, go, run, go, get out of town. And then he says this, alas for women who are pregnant. This is a monumental shift in our theology, is it not? It's a monumental shift in the great commission and command. The whole world has heard, the end has begun. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. You say, why would Jesus say that? Have you ever seen a pregnant woman try to run? My my, my wife, she's, she's nursing right now. And so, I mean, it takes her 30 minutes just to get out of the car. I mean, pray for women in those days. Pray that it might not happen in winter because it's not going to end well for them. For in those days, there will be such, what's the word? Tribulation. There will be such tribulation that has not happened since the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Biblically speaking, what we are about to study in this section is going to be the worst that has ever happened in the history of humanity. In the church, we have a saying where we say, the best is yet to come. That's true. The best is yet to come. Come back next week. The best is yet to come. But it's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse before the best is yet to come. The worst is yet to come as well. Biblically speaking, this is going to be worse than the days of Noah. When God destroyed the world with a flood, Noah's crying out, hey, come to the ark, come to the ark. People are laughing at him, they're disregarding him, they're making fun of him, and all of a sudden it begins to rain. The whole world is destroyed. Jesus says it's going to be worse than that. It's going to be worse than the Tower of Babel whenever man tried to make their way to God and God confused their languages. It's going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah where he sends a fireball to destroy the entire city. is going to be worse than the time in Leviticus when God opened Opened up the ground and swallowed people whole. This is gonna be worse than the days of Moses, where there was ten plagues in Egypt, and the firstborn among the children all perished. This is gonna be worse than the time of judges, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and they're only wicked and evil all of the time. This is gonna be worse than Second Kings when the Babylonians come in and they destroy, laid siege to the entire city, take the men as slaves, and take the women and rape them and murder them and turn them. Them into prostitutes. It's going to be worse than those days. It's going to be worse than when Herod murdered all the babies at Jesus's birth. This, biblically speaking, nothing in the Bible that you're going to read ever compares to what we're going to study today. Historically speaking, it's still the worst. This is going to be worse than Nero burning down Rome. This is going to be worse than World War II and World War I combined. This is going to be worse than Pol Pot or Mao. This is going to be worse than Stalin. This is going to be worse than the Holocaust. What we're going to read is going to be like 9-11 and World War II and the Blitzkrieg all rolled into one. What we're going to read about the violence and the pandemics and the pestilence, it's going to make COVID-19 look like the common cold. That's how bad this is going to be. And so we read and we study about these times of great tribulation. He says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened the days. Instead of dragging this on, instead of making this last, he limits it to seven years of tribulation. Just like there was seven days of creation, at the end of the book, there will be seven years of tribulation. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise before big signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. Why? For I have told you these things beforehand. These are... Red letters. If you look down in your Bible, some of your translations will have it in highlighted in red. You know what that means? These are from the lips of our Lord Jesus. What I'm fixing to tell you today, I didn't make up. I didn't just sit around and dream this stuff up while I was high on cough syrup. We didn't come up with this stuff from getting a decoder from a Cracker Jack box and sit around and pontificate with our friends. No, these are just the words of Jesus from the mouth of our Lord and Savior himself, which means we need to understand. That's why Jesus says here, let the reader understand. These are prophecies, these are guarantees, And these are promises that God gives to his church so we can be alert, be on guard, and we can be uh, ready. So if you're taking notes, I I want you to understand something because today's going to be tough. But I want you to hold this in your heart. I want you to write this on your page, and I want you to talk about this in your small group. Listen, if it's from God, it's for our good. If it's from God, then it's for our good. Jesus doesn't tell us these things to scare us but rather to prepare us. Jesus doesn't tell us these things to freak us out. No, he tells us things because when we are in trials and troubles, he wants us to have faith. He doesn't tell us these things to condemn us, nor even to concern us, but rather to comfort us, to convict us, to encourage us so that we might walk in confidence when it comes with our faith. Listen, if it's from God, that means it's for our good. Even if it's difficult, it's still for our good. Even if it's kind of confusing, it's still for our good. Even if we don't like to talk about it and it doesn't give us the warm, fuzzy feelings inside where we walk away with a little pep in our step, even if that's the sermon you're gonna get today, I want you to understand something. If it's from God, it's for your good. And these are the words of God, which means ultimately it is for our good. Let me give you an illustration to just better help you understand. So my daughter, Esther, she's four years old. And so me and Ashley were sitting down with her the other day and we wanted to go ahead and prepare her. And so we told her, said, baby girl, you're four, which means very soon you're going to be going to kindergarten. And you know what she did? She began to cry because she doesn't want to go to kindergarten. For those of you who are parents, you understand this, right? As parents, sometimes you have to have hard conversations with your kids, right? Because you love them and you want what's best for them. And as a parent... One of the things about being a parent is you have to prepare your children's heart for the next season, age, and stage that they're going to be entering into. And so God is a father. He loves us with the love and the affection that a father has towards his kids. He loves us. He's there for us. He cares for us. And one of the ways that he cares for us is by having conversations with us. And so I'm sitting there with my daughter. I bring her in. I sit her on my knee. And I say, baby girl, you're going to be going to kindergarten because, well, you're a big sister and you're a big girl. And then you're going to be going to big school. And she began crying. She said, I don't want to go to big school. I don't want to grow up because it's comfortable there. She's comfortable in her class. She loves her Mother's Day out teacher. She loves all of her friends. She likes having recess. She likes, you know, learning her alphabet, playing songs, singing songs. She loves nap. No, she doesn't love nap time. But, but it's comfortable for her at Mother's Day out. But she needs to grow and she needs to be prepared for what comes next. Listen, this is all God's doing. Some of us have gotten too comfortable in this life. And what God does here is he prepares our hearts for what comes next. And what I want you to understand as we dive into these things, you don't need to be scared, but you need to be prepared. You don't need to be anxious. You do need to be alert and you don't need to freak out and, you know, go hide in the closet and start reading lamentations and loading your gun. You don't need to do all that stuff, right? Don't go doomsday prepper on me and get a hundred water bottles and toilet paper and stock up for the end of the world. Don't do that. No, what you, what you need to do is this you need to realize that God loves you with the love and the affection that a father has towards his kids. And if it's in his word, that means ultimately it is for our good. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to spend the remainder of the sermon doing a deep dive through the book of Revelation. So here in Mark chapter 13, Jesus uses his word, the great tribulation, but he only gives us just a little bit. John, in the book of Revelation, which is actually called the Revelation of Jesus, because Jesus gives him this prophecy, John takes it from maybe two-dimensional, brings it into 3D. John is the high-definition version, revelation, of what we read here in Mark chapter 13. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the seven years of tribulation, and actually takes part in three different ways. First, we're going to see the seven seals. And when we talk about the seals, we're talking about a scroll that is rolled up and it has little seals to let you know that it's not been broken. When I say seals, I don't mean like sea world, you know, the little earth, earth. That's all I'm talking about. Seven seals. Revelation has a lot of imagery. There's dragons, there's beasts. There are no seals. Okay. But it's the seven seals of revelation. The second thing we're going to look at is we're going to see, Oh, we got a nice little slide. The second thing we're going to look at is the seven trumpets and then The third thing we're going to see is the seven bulls. Now, revelation is apocalyptic literature, so it doesn't happen all at the same time. It's not sequential, but rather it's all kind of just thrown into the mix. It's not linear thinking, it's circular thinking, and so there's going to be overlap between the two of these, but for the time being, I just went ahead and organized them. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. You guys ready to dive in? You guys excited? You guys, I hope, whatever, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, here we go. Y'all ain't going anywhere. Well, I guess you could, but, you know, I'll see you as you walk out the door. But uh, here's the seven seals. The first seal that we're going to read comes in Revelation 6:1 through 2. The white horse. This is the beginning of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Here, the first seal is this, deception. Revelation 6, 1 through 2. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seals. Who's opening it? It's Jesus. He opened the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and the rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came conquering and to conquer. The first seal is the rise of the Antichrist. This is the rise of the one world leader. It is the rise of the beast. I want you to notice something. He has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. You know why? Because he comes with false peace. His weapon is a false peace from a false prophet. People bow down, worship him, welcome him. They're excited because of him, but he doesn't bring true peace because only King Jesus brings peace, amen? Only Jesus is the prince of peace. Only Jesus is the one who brings a peace that passes understanding. Only Jesus offers the shalom of God, the peace of God for our souls. He comes and he brings a false peace which opens up the second seal, which is the red horse or war. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature come and out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take what? To take the peace from earth so that people would slay one another and he was given a great sword. So the first is a false peace and then comes along behind it, there will be a great war. This is a war to begin to end all wars, nation against nation, brother against brother, this is kingdom against kingdom. And what's going to happen after that is the black horse comes along. Revelation 6, 5 through 9, famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. The, the scales represent finances, the economy. It represents What's happening geopolitically, it's the economy of the day, the scales and finances, weights and measures. And I heard to see my voice in the midst of the four living creatures cry out, say, a quart of wheat for the denarius, a quart of three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil nor the wine. Listen, the more wars you have, What's gonna happen is it's going to devastate and demolish the nations around the world. Have you ever seen a war-torn nation? You ever seen the aftermath of a great civil war or a great war? What happens is all the people die, the economy begins to crash, and all of a sudden there's a great inflation of money and goods and services cost exponentially more than they were before. So for an example, I have a photo up here. This is a man going to buy groceries in Germany after World War I. That is a pile of money. Those are kids playing with gold bars. This is what inflation was like in Germany after World War I. And they would have to spend that much money just to be able to buy a week's worth of groceries for their kids because inflation rose so much. This is what he's saying. There will be famine. So crops and things will no longer be of good or of services. People will not have any income. They will not have any jobs. There will be nowhere for them to work. And money will be basically worthless. Children will be playing with bricks of gold. This has already happened in the world. This is happening currently in countries like Venezuela. This happened in World War I in Germany. It happens in other countries because when there is war, after war, the entire nation is in shambles. And he says, this is what's going to happen. The black horse comes and brings along with famine as people begin to starve to death and are unable to purchase goods for their family. The next is the pale horse, Revelation 6, 7 through 8. When he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, because after war and people starving to death, death is the natural result, and for people who don't know Jesus, hell is what awaits them. Followed them, and they were given the authority over fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, one-fourth of the population dead, that's about 2 billion people killed with the sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts. What I find so interesting in, in this section is this, is it says there will be pestilence and it will be led by wild beasts. Now, when you read that, you think wild beasts, what does that mean? I mean, is there lions and tigers and bears? Oh my. Right. Are we talking about people getting trampled on by elephants and crocodiles coming out of the sewer and eating people? Like, is that what we're, we're looking at? No. That's not what it's saying. What what is the most dangerous animal on the planet? Well, <laughs> it's a rat. Rats have killed more people over the history of humanity than any other animal because they carry diseases. The bubonic plague in the 14th century, that was created that was a, a, a disease that jumped from a rat into the human population and it killed 500,000, one-fourth of the population of England during that period. And what science is now understanding is that these pestilence and pandemics and epidemics and diseases are actually coming from animals, that they're jumping from animals into humans. This is how epidemics begin. So SARS-H1N1, they believe, comes from from a pig. You have the uh, mad cow disease, which comes from a comes from a cow, right? And they're even saying COVID-19 originated from a bat in a poverty-stricken area with very poor sanitation. And so now science is recognizing what the Bible has always taught, that plagues and pestilence come from wild animals. Just goes to show that this is a eternal book. It's not an ancient book. It's an eternal book. And it's always true. It's always trustworthy. It's timeless. Therefore, it's always timely. And if you give it enough time, eventually science will catch up with the Bible. It's fascinating to me that as we read the Bible and we make these, begin to make these connections that 2,000 years ago, the Bible told us that pestilence comes from wild beasts and now science is finally catching up with the Bible. By the way, do you know how they figured out what the cure for uh, bubonic plague was? Wash your hands and quarantine the sick. You know what the Bible tells us to do that? In the book of Leviticus. Somebody was reading the book of Leviticus 6,000 years ago. and They're like, hey, maybe we should wash our hands and stop touching dead things. And then all of a sudden, wow, look at that. The plague was cured. Just goes to show if you give science enough time, eventually it will catch up with the Bible. Here's what we read next. Point five is there is martyrdom. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls that had been slain from the word of God and for the witnesses that was born. At this time, it's gonna be like the age of Nero. It's gonna be like the first persecution of the Christians when Nero came in and he murdered the Christians. He arrested them. He used their bodies as torches to light up his gardens. He laughed and he blamed the Christians for the persecution that they were experiencing and for Rome burning down. That's the same thing we're going to see in the end times, that they're going to begin to blame Christians for all the pandemics. They're going to blame the church for all of the events that are happening. They're going to blame God for the economic downfall that they're experiencing. And there's going to be a massive wave of persecution that is going to come against the church, that is going to come against Christians, that is going to come against those who follow Jesus. They will be arrested. They will be beaten. They'll be dragged into the synagogues. And this is why in Mark 13, Jesus says, when these things happen, run. Fascinating thing that in AD 70, whenever Nero laid siege to the temple, Christians were the ones who survived because instead of running into the walls of the temple, which was the common thought of that day, all the Jews ran in, slaughtered and murdered. The Christians survived because they ran and hid in the caves like Jesus told them to do. This is why Jesus says, run, get out of town. During these days, there will be a great persecution, but also during these times, there will be a great revival that takes place. People will be coming to Jesus left and right. People who grew up in the church and have rejected these teachings, when the end comes, they'll remember, no, this is what my pastor told me way back in 2021. I remember that crazy sermon series about living in the last days. I thought he was insane, but here we are. And now I know that this is true. You're gonna have people who who, who have rejected Jesus come to faith in amazing ways. You're gonna see Muslims convert to Christ. You're gonna see Jews convert to Christ. You're gonna see grandparents prayers be answered. You're going to see prodigal sons and daughters come back home. You're going to see husbands give their life to Jesus. You're going to see wives surrender their life to Christ. You're going to see a great wave of not only persecution, but revival that takes place at the same time. Because as persecution increases, our perseverance increases as well. Christians are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go and the more resilient you become. So don't feel sorry for these who are crying out, because they are worshiping, and it is their witness that is the testimony that is leading to this great revival that is happening. The, the next thing that we read under the seals is there will be heavenly signs. Here's what Revelation 6:12 6, through 16 says, "When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake." And the sun became black as sackcloth, full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell into the earth. The fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. It's a global earthquake that happens. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Falling out to the mountain rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand it? These are earthquakes that are happening. This is a violent upheaval of the geological structure. And what I find so incredibly just tragic is that as in this moment, people are going to begin crying out to God. And what they're gonna say is this, kill me now. Just get it over with. Who can take this? Who can stand this? Who can save us from the wrath of the lamb? But at this moment, there will be no salvation for them. There will be nothing but greater tribulation that is to come. They're not crying out for salvation. They're crying out for death. They're not crying out in repentance. They're crying out for some form of relief. And at this moment, there will be no relief or respite because they refuse to repent, which leads to the seventh seal, silence in heaven. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You read this and you're shocked. Seriously? Really? The angels are thinking the same thing. They behold God's glory and power day in, day out for all of eternity. But yet in this moment, as the end begins to unfold, the angels are silent. They stop singing. And for 30 minutes, there is a silence in heaven. And then all of a sudden, what we see is this. 14 more judgments to come. The silence will be broken as an angel grabs a trumpet and he begins to call out, For his king. Just like in some of the old war movies that you've watched, or maybe in the ancient days or in the Old Testament, what happens as they get ready to go out to battle? There will be a soldier that grabs a trumpet and blows the trumpet to rally the troops to be able to let people know the war has begun. The king is coming. And here we see an angel grabs a trumpet and then blows the trumpet, letting you know the king is on the move. Seven trumpets, Revelation 8, 2 through 5. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. The seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar and with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers and all the saints and the golden offer before the throne. Then the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose from God before the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings and flashes of lightning and a great earthquake. What I need you to understand something is as the angel gathers the incense from the altar, grabs the fire puts it in the censer and begins to pour it out. I want you to know this is not a unjust wrath that's gonna pour out from God. This is God's holiness from heaven. This is God's purity. This is God's holiness. This is God's righteousness that is about to be revealed onto the earth. And so God's not doing this like a little child who's throwing a temper tantrum. This is God's holiness being revealed To all of humanity, the holiness of God from heaven being poured out. And then it says, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, don't read that too fast. Because we read that and we're like, okay, peals of thunder, lightning, earthquake, okay, yada, yada, so what? Do you know what this is? This is This is a global storm. This is a storm that takes the entire planet. See, in our day, we have regional storms. So we have a a hurricane out in the Gulf. Maybe there's a blizzard up north. Maybe there's a tsunami in Asia, maybe an earthquake in California. And we think, okay, well, it's all regionalized. So it doesn't really affect us that much. But here, this is a global storm that's all gonna be happening around the earth at the same time. You say, Byron, that's ridiculous. Is that even scientifically possible for that to happen? Actually, yes, it is. Because we, we see this happen on other planets One planet would be Jupiter itself. This is a great red storm that has enveloped the entire planet. Very well possibly this might be what the earth looks like during the last days. A global storm that takes over the entire planet. And here's what it is. It's the wrath of the lamb. It is the judgment of God that is being poured out upon all people. And a trumpet hasn't even blown yet. Now we begin to see the trumpets. First trumpet is that grass and trees will be destroyed. Revelation 8-7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all of the green grass was burned up. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're a doomsday prepper or not or if you clip coupons for Kroger to be able to stock up on toilet paper, you ain't getting out of this one. What's interesting is this is it's talking about volcanoes here that's what that's what it says when it says it begins to rain blood what happens is actually for the soot and from all the dust it gets caught up in the upper atmosphere and then when it begins to rain there is a barometrical pressure that takes place and all of that begins to affect the color of the rain as well they didn't discover this until the 19th century by the way which again goes to show eventually science will catch up with the bible The second thing we see is that there is seas that turn to blood, red tide, all across the oceans. Revelation 8 the second angel blew his trumpets and something like a great mountain burning with fire. What is that? That's a volcano was thrown up into the sea and a third of the sea became like blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were to be destroyed. Here you have actually more volcanic eruptions, but this time the volcanic eruptions due to the tectonic shifts of the massive earthquakes that are being experienced are coming from under the sea and they're erupting in the oceans, and they're devastating the water supply, killing every sea creature and one-third of all of the ships. And it just just might make you feel a little comfortable to know that there are one million underwater volcanoes in the world. (laughs) 70% of all volcanoes are underwater. But I, I would just submit to you this question, something that just came to me as I was studying and reading and if they're writing this 2,000 years ago, how, how do they know that there's underground volcanoes in the ocean? It's just something that I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, this word is true and this word is good. And again, give it enough time, science will catch up with the Bible. Because now we know that 70% of all volcanoes are underwater. Just something to help you sleep at night. There we go. The next thing we see is that the water turns bitter. A third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, fell on a third of the rivers, a third of the springs of water and a named star of wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, which means poisoned. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Now, it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to figure out what this describes. It's an asteroid plummeting to earth. Now, before you start saying that this stuff only happens in the movies, let me go ahead and remind you that according to NASA, there are 25,000 near-Earth asteroids who are orbiting our planet right now. You say, well, what are the odds of something like that happening? What are the odds? Well, according to USA Today, the odds of an asteroid hitting our planet by the year 2032 is 1 out of 64,000. You say, well, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. One in 64,000? Well, let me just say, if there was a $600 billion jackpot lottery and there was a one in 62,000 odds, you would be clearing out your bank account trying to get that, right? Just to let you know that this is, a likely scenario that is to happen. And let me remind you of what Jesus says in Mark, that this will be a tribulation that the world has never seen since creation. Typically these events, they happen maybe once every 500, maybe once every 1,000 years, but these are all happening in a seven-year period. It is one event after the next event. It is one after the other, one on top of the other. It is seal after seal, trumpet after trumpet, judgment after judgment, bull, bull, wrath, all happening within a period of seven years. Why? Because if he didn't cut short the days, no one would be able to survive. This is the tribulation. Fourth is, there's a son, And the stars, they ceased to shine. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, a third of the stars and a third of the light of night. When I looked, I saw that there was an eagle crying out in a loud voice and it flew. And as the eagle flew directly overhead, it said, whoa, whoa, whoa. To those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets, the sun is turned off. The moon ceases to shine. The stars go out. Day becomes night and night is set on fire and the earth is no longer on its axis. There is a polar shift that takes place. It is literally the world turned upside down. And now there is an angel flying across the sky preparing people. Whoa, 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 get ready. There are more trumpets yet to come. This is intermission. It's about to get worse. Number five, the demons are unleashed on earth. Revelation nine, one through two, a fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and a sun was in the air. It was darkened with the smoke that comes from the shaft. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In apocalyptic literature, stars represent angels. This is what we read in the book of Job. The sons of men and the stars, they represent angels that have fallen. And Satan goes down to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, and he lets loose demons that have never set forth on the face of this planet. These are demons that are so bad, God had them locked up since eternity. These are demons that are so bad they have not even set foot or able to been tempt or to attack anyone on mankind. Yet here in the last days, Satan goes down to the abyss. Do you remember when we were studying Mark chapter five, legion, when Jesus cast out the legions of demons? What did that demon say? He said, do not send us where? To the abyss for it is not our appointed time. Apparently the bottomless pit is so bad, not even the biggest, baddest demon in the Bible wants to go there. And here we see Satan unleashes the pit. And now for five months, they begin to torment and torture the people on earth. Just imagine this. Imagine if every supermax prison, imagine if Guantanamo Bay, they let loose all of the terrorists. They let loose all of the sex offenders, all of the murderers, all the violent criminals, all the thieves, all of the rapists. They let them all go and they can't capture them. They can't keep them. They can't lock them back up. Imagine that, it would be hell on earth. And that's exactly what we see during the tribulation. It's fascinating as you read this next section here, it actually tells us that for five months, these demons, they are enabled and they are allowed to begin to torture people. Here's what it says It says they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee them. To me, this is the most horrific part of the seven years is that for five months, people will long to die, but death goes on holiday. Death goes on vacation. Five months, people will not die. You say, well, that sounds like a good thing unless you're a terminal cancer patient. Unless you have a horrific car crash. Unless you are one of the ones so tormented by demons you try to kill yourself and you can't. Death for some people would be mercy. Death for some people would be respite. Death for some would be a way out. But yet for five months during the tribulation, there will be no death. Horrific. Horrific. Terrifying. Here's what we continue reading. War kills one third of the population. Revelation 9:12. The first woe has passed, but there's still two woes that are yet to come. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying, The sixth angel who had a trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the river Euphrates. So the four angels who've been prepared for this hour, the day, the month, the year, they were released to kill. A third of mankind. Now, listen, I'm not a mathematician. I have to take off my shoes to count to 20. But if we're already taking out one third and now we add another, what we see is this, is you're looking at half of the earth's population all dead. Four billion people dead in less than a seven year period. How do you even bury that many people? You're having mass graves, you're having bodies thrown on top of bodies, set on fire, burn piles with rotten corpses all on top of each other. And you would think by this point, people would finally be crying out for forgiveness. By this point, people would be begging God for mercy, asking, coming to Christ. But look what Revelation nine twenty says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, they did not repent of their works, of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. It's tragic which goes to show that there are some people who don't not believe in God because of a lack of evidence, but rather because of their own arrogance. They refuse to believe, not because God is not real, but because they hate him, they despise him, they reject him, and it's not due to evidence, it's due to their own pride, and it's due to their own arrogance. If you are here today and you are listening to my voice, do not let this be you. Repent today while forgiveness is still available for you. If you hear the words of the Lord, do not harden your hearts and don't put off until today tomorrow what you know you're supposed to do today because the next seal is the kingdom being declared the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and his is christ and he shall rule forever and ever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their face and they worship God. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The Ark of the Covenant was seen with this temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Here you see, The king is now off his throne. Heaven is open. The Ark of the Covenant, the power and the presence of God is now being revealed from heaven. Our king gets off his throne. The trumpet blows. Here comes the king ready and waiting to wage war and to pour out his wrath. To those of you who are here today and you're telling me that you're going to take your chances. You say, I just don't know if this God stuff is for real. And I just don't know if Jesus is for real. And I just, you read the Bible and all of this sounds really crazy. I, I just don't know. I think, I think I'm gonna take my chances. Seriously? Really? You wanna take your chances with this? You wanna risk this? For what? For your lousy job? For your community college education? You wanna risk this for your loser boyfriend? You want to risk this for your porn addiction and your drug habits? You want to risk this for Friday nights with the boys drinking out till two o'clock in the morning saying craft beer is a hobby when really you're a borderline alcoholic? You really want to risk this for that? For the puny life that you have on this earth? You're willing to step to this? Seriously, I'll make a decision when I'm 30. You said that five years ago. You're balding and you can't even keep a job. You're 37 and you keep pushing it back. Seriously? You wanna step to this? You wanna go face to face with the king on the day of judgment? Listen to me friends, heaven is real Hell is hot, forever is a long time. Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is a living God who one day is gonna get up off of his throne and every single one of us will have to stand before him. And you get two choices. You get grace today or wrath tomorrow, but those are the only two choices. You have to stand before him. And either today you can experience his love and grace or on that day you can experience God's wrath. You say, well, Byron, that just doesn't sound very loving. I thought God was a God of love. I mean, why, 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 why isn't he more loving? Doesn't the Bible say God is love? Absolutely, yes, the Bible says that God is love. And God in his love brought you here today so you don't have to experience his wrath. See, isn't God loving? Yes, he is so loving, but his love is not like our love. His love is perfect. His love is undefiled. His love is pure. His love is holy. He loves with a perfect love. And if you have that kind of love and what you have that love towards is violated, well, then it would be unloving not to have wrath towards that. I love my daughters. You harm my daughters, I'll kill you. Listen to me. Understand this in a culture that says love, 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 love. People don't understand what love is. Because if something you love is violated and you don't have anger or wrath towards that, then you never loved them in the first place. Wrath and love are two sides to the same coin. And you have a choice. You can either receive God's love or experience God's wrath. Because it would be unloving for him to wink at sin and let you pass. That's not love. Love and wrath are two sides of the same coin. And no one experiences wrath unless they want to. People people say all the time, how could a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. People send themselves. With their unwillingness to repent and to respond to the love of God. I want you to understand something. We are saved to God and we are saved from God at the same time. We are saved to God. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, he will love you. He will welcome you. He will forgive you. He'll draw you in. You can have a relationship with him. He will answer your prayers. He will be an ever help in a present time of need. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will always be right there with you. He will give you spiritual gifts. He'll give you a church for a community. He'll give you illumination to understand the Bible. He will never leave you. Always be right there for you. You can be reconciled into a relationship relationship with god we are saved to god but at the same time we are saved from him as well we are saved from the wrath of god because those of us who are christians jesus bore the wrath of god on the cross in our place Jesus goes to the cross in our place for our sins, and he suffers on our behalf. So on this day, there is no suffering for us. He goes to the cross, and he experiences the full blast of God's wrath on the cross as that cup is poured out. And as you stand before him on that day, you are protected by the lamb, you are covered by the blood, and when God pours out his cup, there is no wrath for you, forgiven, saved by God, saved to God, and you are saved from God. But those of you who are not Christians, when he pours out that cup, if you don't let Jesus take the wrath for you, you will bear the brunt of the wrath of God for eternity. This is what Christians believe. No one is under wrath unless they want to be. It's your choice. And what we're going to read as we dive into the seven bowls is the future that awaits you. First is a global pandemic. Revelation tells us, 16, one through two, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out on earth the seven bowls of wrath. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on earth and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark and worshiped its image. Boils and sores and pandemics break out on everybody. Who? Who? who rejects Jesus. Not on those who love him because God knows who belongs to him. God knows who's his children. Children of God do not experience the wrath of God during this time. God has a way of protecting us. God has a way of enduring us. God has a way of saving us even through the midst of these trials and tribulations. Just think about in the time of Exodus when the 10 plagues came across on Moses, the Israelites did not suffer harm they were protected in the supernatural protection. And when the firstborn were killed, anybody who had the lamb's blood across the top of their doorpost, their home was spared. The wrath of God only pours out on those who refuse because wrath is a choice. You have a choice. God protects his children or God judges those who are against him. The sea creatures die, Revelation 16, 3. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died and that was in the sea. In one moment, every sea creature gone, dead, destroyed. You say, well, at least we have fresh water to drink. Rivers turned to blood, Revelation 16, 4 through 7. The angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became like blood and I heard an angel in charge of the water. Listen, there's an angel in charge of water. In the book of Daniel, we see that there's principalities over nations and regions. In the book of Revelation, we see there are seven angels that are over seven churches. Possibly, our church has an angel that is protecting us too. And here we see that there is an angel over the waters, and he stirs the waters. Holy is he who sits, who was and is. You brought these judgments. Here's what he says: For they have shed blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink. It's what they deserve. You say, but that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. God's not fair. God is gracious. Life is not fair, but God is good. Grace is not fair. What we call grace is this it's a gift undeserved, unmerited favor that comes from God. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And right now, some of you are squirming as we talk about this. Do you think, pastor, you're just trying to scare me. You're just saying these things to scare me and to manipulate me. You know, I, I think I'm a really good person. I've tried really hard. I don't think that I deserve these things. Try to tell that to God on judgment day. You really think God cares about what you think on this day? You say, but, but God, you know, like, I, I helped this person across the street, and I went to, I watched a YouTube video, and they were, made some really good, good arguments. You think God's going to be in heaven going, oh my me, what would I have done without you, Carl? Jeez, all this history, because you flunked eighth grade. Wow, okay, how about you tell me how I need to govern the universe? Go ahead. Tell me how. Tell me how. Really? God don't care. Your arguments to God on this day, worthless compared to the wrath that will be poured out and you're squirming and you're thinking because you think, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by Jesus' work on the cross. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. We all, like sinners, have gone astray, and the wages of sin is death. And unless you let Jesus die in your place, you get what you deserve. The holiness of God poured out it's not fair it's grace the sun scorches the earth the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun and was allowed to scorch the people with fire they were scorched by fire and heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues they did not repent and give him glory we call this global warming but maybe global warming is really God's warning to us letting us know birth pains are here and the end is near 5 the beast is challenged the fifth angel poured out his bowl onto the throne of the beast and the kingdom was plunged into darkness people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the god of heaven for their pains and sores yet they did not repent They did not repent of their sins. Instead of repenting, they are shaking their fists at heaven. They are literally biting off their tongues rather than asking God for forgiveness. Their hearts are so hardened. Their souls are so darkened and filled with pride. They refuse to repent. Armageddon, the final battle, Revelation 16, 12 through 16. A sixth angel pours out his bowl. the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up, prepared the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, there were unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go about in the kings of the world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of the Almighty. Behold! Jesus speaks, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who keeps his garments on. Be ready, be alert, be on guard that you may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We saw this verse last week, as Jesus shows up, there is a great second coming of our king. And in this day, he will have fire in his eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will have a rod iron that he's gonna force Babylon to drink the cup of his wrath. There will be riding on a white horse with a robe drenched in blood, with a tattoo down the side of his legs that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha Omega, first, the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is our great warrior king. And on this day he comes to bring battle to the great dragon of old and he slits the throat of the dragon. He chops the head off of the beast and he throws them in the lake of fire forever along with his demons. This is who Jesus is. Jesus the first time he comes as a suffering servant. The next time he comes, he will be our warrior king. The first time he comes as a lamb but the next time he comes he will be the lion of the tribe of judah the first time he comes he comes to forgive and to love and to save but the next time he comes he will bring battle the first time he comes as the suffering servant but he is no longer that servant he is our risen lord savior he is our great warrior king and he comes to bring battle and he comes To slay the enemy. And today, if you're here, you have a decision to make. You will either be saved by him or you will be slayed by him. Hell was made for Satan and the demons, but there is room for you too. Choose your king. Choose your side. Make your decision. Make a choice. The last bull judgment is the earth will literally be shaken. Shaken. Revelation 16, 17 through 21, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and there's a loud voice coming out of the temple, the throne saying, It is done! Can you think of the last time somebody said that? Jesus on the cross. It is finished! Salvation was applied. Here we see salvation is fulfilled. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, great earthquakes, such never has been since man was on the earth. What does Jesus say in Mark 13? For in those days there will be tribulation, there's our word, has not been since the beginning of creation, God created until now, and there never will be. Let the reader understand. Red letters from the lips of our Lord Jesus Promises from the mouth of our Savior. So there was a great earthquake, and the great city was split into three parts, and the cities and the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drink the cup of wine and the, fat, the the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were anywhere to be found. And there were great hailstones and 100 pounds. Each fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hell because the plagues were severe. In the moment, The entire earth is destroyed. Earthquakes, fire, peals of lightning, a global storm. In one single moment, the entire planet is covered. And all of a sudden, the oceans, they begin to rise. And the mountains are nowhere to be found. After the earthquake, the world splits into three pieces. And water begins to rise up. No mountains. The Andes, gone. The Rocky Mountains, gone. The Himalayans gone, Mount Everest gone, the entire world covered with water yet again. And you wonder, what What does that look like? In one moment, God reverts the earth back to its pre-flood state. Back to Genesis chapter one, the way God intended to be. In the beginning, God hovered over the waters of the sea. And now we see the earth filled with water, ready to receive her Lord and King as Jesus descends from the clouds. And when Jesus descends from the clouds, he comes back and he makes everything into a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth with no sin. Sin is destroyed and defeated. Death is destroyed and defeated. The grave has been overcome. There will be no more hurts, no more hardships, no more pain, no more trials, no more troubles, no tribulations. Behold, I make all things new. Our king is coming and there will be a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth where Jesus rules and reigns forevermore. You say, what is that? What does that even mean? Come back next week. I told you next week's sermon's gonna be amazing. <laughs> that was my introduction. Okay, now turn back to Mark chapter 13. What I want to do is I want to give you five reasons why you should study the end times. Jesus says, I've told you all these things beforehand because he wants us to be ready. He wants us to know. He wants us to be mindful. He doesn't want us to be ignorant when it comes to these things. He wants us like a little child to have our hearts prepared. Because if it's in God's word, what is it? It's for our good. And so I know many of you haven't studied these things or thought deeply over this. So let me in closing give you five reasons why we should study the end times. The first reason is this, is that it reorders our priorities. When you read this, And you begin thinking with the end in mind, let me ask you, are the things you're worried about really that big of a deal? Are the things you're investing in, spending your money on, are the accounts you're following on Instagram, is it really that big of a deal? Is what other people say about you and how people treat you and the way you build your budget and raise your kids, is that a priority on the last day? If it's not a priority, then then it should really cause us to reorder our priorities today. Are we living with the end in mind? If we know that everything's gonna burn, what kind of people should we be? We shouldn't be people of materialism and greed and of need. We should be people of love. We should be people who use our money to bless people instead of abuse people to gain more and more in this earth. It causes a a radical reorientation of our priorities. The second thing is, is it strengthens our church. We're wanting to build a a strong church, a healthy church, a church where every man, woman, and child gets to experience life change through Jesus. That's who we are. That's the type of church that we are building. And when we teach these things, it it really kind of shows you who's in and who's out. All week long, last week and the week before, people getting up and walking out of my sermons. People who don't come back, people who send emails, right? And that really just goes to show me that they were never part of us in the first place. Unwilling to, unwilling to invest and to care and to pray and to serve and to seek the goodwill of God. If you come in to get entertained, a pat on the back and a slap on the butt, drink the coffee, and you eat our donuts, but you don't serve, give, love, you're not involved in a small group, and then you want to give us a finger when you walk out the door, you weren't a part of us to begin with. The church is strengthened through this. Jesus says in Matthew 24 in his account that there was a separation of the wheats and the tares and the goats and the sheep. End times theology lets you know who's committed, who's in and who's out and who you're gonna to begin to build a church with. Do I love offending people? No, I don't like it. But you know what? I would rather offend people than offend God Amen. by not teaching yes. his word. Yes. Number three, it purifies our hearts. Search me, O oh God, let me know. Purify my heart. When Jesus returns, what are you gonna be doing? Where is he going to find you at? Is he going to find you serving and loving someone else? Is he going to find you being faithful and true? Is he going to find you living according to the convictions that you have? He says, I'm coming like a thief. We don't know. Don't let him find you doing things on that day that you would be ashamed of. It purifies our hearts. It purifies our intentions. It purifies our love. It produces holiness within side of the church because we know the end is near. The end is soon. We don't know the day nor the hour, but we do know who our Lord is, and so we must have hearts that are purified. Number four, it motivates our mission. Does this not? Does this not inspire you? Does this not let you know, like when you read this and you know your friends and your family, people that you know and love who do not yet know and love Jesus, that this very well may be without divine intervention and God's grace on their life, this is the future that awaits them. It's time for us to stop playing games as a church. It's time for us to stop playing shuffleboard on a cruise ship and pick up our Bibles and be the battleship of the church that God has called us to be. It's time for us to stop being you know, spectators and being active participators in the life of the church. We need less armchair theologians and we need more missionaries who are gonna bring the good news of the gospel to those who are lost, to those who are hurting, to those who are in need. So that way we can motivate ourselves for the mission of God. The great commission is still in effect. Jesus ain't come back yet. This gospel must be preached to all the world and then the end will come. Is the end here? No, then get to work. It motivates your mission. Pray, love, invite, invest, serve. Bring somebody to church with you. There's a seat next to you next week. Bring it and let it be filled with somebody who who doesn't know the gospel. Motivates our mission. And then lastly, it glorifies our God. God is not glorified by ignorance. God is glorified when men and women open their Bibles, study, learn, and grow. Listen, to this date, this is very much probably the longest sermon I've ever preached. And that's saying a lot. So give yourself a big round of applause. And there are some people who are going to leave here today, and they're not going to be very happy. But you know what? Every time the Bible is open, God is pleased. Every time the Bible is open, Jesus is preached, God is glorified, and people's lives are changed. And so I didn't tell a joke during the message. You probably weren't laughing very much. Probably weren't smiling either. But you know what? As we were preaching this and we're sitting under the word of God, heaven was smiling. Heaven was smiling because God's children are being prepared and loved well. My job as your pastor is to preach the word. Not the parts I like, not the parts that I agree with. They draw a big crowd and give you warm, fuzzy feelings inside. My job as a pastor is to equip you for that, good, for that day, that you may be prepared for every good work. That's my job. And today, Redemption, we did our jobs. We read about five chapters of the Bible, and we studied one of the most complicated and confusing texts in all the Gospel of Mark. And you know what? Your head may feel like it's exploding, but heaven right now is smiling down on his church, and God is pleased because we are learning his word together. And so if you're taking notes, here's the last line and then we'll close. When God gets the glory, we get the joy. The more we glorify God, the more joy he gives to us. The more we praise him, the more joy he gives to us. The more we glorify him in our life, in the ways that we live and the things that we do and what we learn and grow and how we love, The more we glorify God, the more joy he keeps giving to his church.